Hello, Marcus Smith here. The Constant Wonder Team is busy preparing more great conversations for you, and while we're working on that, we want to share with you an episode from another really engaging podcast from BYU Radio. Top of mind, it's called. It tackles complex current events and explores these from diverse and surprising angles. The aim is to help all of us become more empathetic toward people who might think differently from us and to help us be more hopeful about solving the challenges of modern life. Take a listen to this episode on What Makes for a Great City. When I realized, like, okay, I'm out of here, you know, I was about seven. That's when I started planning my escape. Majora Carter grew up in the Hunts Point section of the South Bronx. Hunts Point, you know, as I was growing up here, was literally the poster child for urban blight. Featured on the nightly news all over the country, um, you know, as the kind of place that was just like the epitome of all that's wrong, you know, with inner cities. Even landlords were torching their buildings to collect insurance money because we were redlined, which meant that no financial institutions were actually loaning. You could not get anything financed here. Uh, And so things just fell into major disrepair. Is at the beginning of the summer, um, when I turned eight years old, actually, I watched both buildings at either end of my block, you know, have these massive fires. So literally overnight, um, you know, people that I knew and loved, um, you know, I saw every day on my way to school or my way to play with friends were just gone because the building, you know, many of the apartments burned down. And um, at the end of the summer, my brother was killed in the drug wars and it was just like, no, this is not the place for me or for anybody. I started thinking, I'm going to use my brain to get out of here. I'm going to go to what I called a name school, <laughs> like the kind of university that everybody knows about, a, a, you know, an Ivy League or something like that. And uh, yeah, that was me at seven. I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about. I think that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is top of mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, what makes a city great? We asked you. People here are so friendly. You talk to strangers. I love that our city is growing so richly. We have an incredible restaurant scene, and we also offer a lot of wonderful parks and greenways. Something I really love is that all public bathrooms have free menstrual products. I think people have to choose a place that will be home and choose to stay. I was led to believe that you measure success by how far you get away. You grow up and you're gonna be somebody, but you're gonna get out of here. That was Erica Leyland, Kim Parati, Haley Trotter, Lynn Kreutz, and Majora Carter, who started planning her escape from the South Bronx when she was seven. These days, she has a much different view. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. But isn't that the whole point of moving for a better neighborhood, better school, better job, better house? Americans move a lot more than people in other wealthy countries. In a given year, close to 10% of us will relocate. That's 25 million people shifting around in search of a better fit, swiping left on cities that don't satisfy, looking for the perfect match. Suppose we all took Majora Carter's perspective instead. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. It's partly the idea that you and your community deserve better, which is a pretty radical notion for a place like the South Bronx that's been written off as hopeless. But it's also the idea that the relationship goes both ways. 
if your city isn't all you need it to be, what can you do to make it better? Oh, I had no interest in ever coming back. (laughs) Majora Carter had to escape the South Bronx to realize all of this. She went to Wesleyan University, then started grad school at NYU. And that's when she came home. I needed a cheap place to stay, which was my parents' house. And uh, that was, you know, it was, it was hard to, to move back here because it absolutely felt like a defeat. But for all its flaws, Hunts Point was still her hometown, and she couldn't help but feel protective when New York City started planning to put a huge garbage dump there. Working against the dump galvanized her belief that the South Bronx deserved better. Then she discovered the Bronx River, and things really changed. I knew that we had something called the Bronx River because I saw it on a subway map, but You know, I'd never actually thought to even go there. It looked like the least appetizing place you could ever want to be. It was like you would, it it had industry lining the shores or the back of warehouses, you know, abutting it. Nothing that it didn't even read river at all. Then one summer morning, Carter went for a run with her dog, which she named after Xena, the warrior princess. Xena was a German shepherd mix. You know, I'm going jogging, as I often did, like right at the crack of dawn. And my dog literally just like bolted into this this uh, dump that I would pass all the time. And you could, it would literally had weeds over my head and, you know, just piles of garbage that you could see from the street. And I never had any interest in going in there. It's like, why? And, but of course, Zena pulled me in and, uh, and I was just like afraid to let go of her leash. There was a chain, I swear, with links as big as my head. Um, you know, piles of just like garbage, like everywhere. It was just ridiculous. And, um, but I kept going and I could see like light through like these, these weeds and stuff. And, and then at the end, when, when I sort of pushed through all that, or rather Zena pulled me through all that, um, I realized that I was looking at the Bronx River from a completely different angle that I'd never seen it before. The sunlight was glinting off of the water and it was just magical. And I was like, oh my gosh, there actually is a river here and it's really pretty. All I could think was, wow, this is uh, the beginning of my neighborhood's revitalization. Like if we, we, this is where we can start. Like this is where, you know, I can, you know, start helping people see that our community does have value and it should be beautiful for us. Carter led the effort to turn that riverfront dump into an award-winning park. And I got married there back in 2006. A park in Hunts Point fit for a wedding is something seven-year-old Majora Carter could never have imagined. And she started to wonder, what else could they get for their community? We asked everybody. (laughs) But her nonprofit zeroed in on what the kids who were graduating high school and heading off to college were saying. We asked them, so what do you think? Um, you know, that the neighborhood needs now. And they were like, oh, well, we need more, you know, homeless shelters and really affordable housing for really poor people. Um, we need, you know, more you know, health clinics. We need more community centers for the kids, which was really funny since they weren't um, much older than the kids they were talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, we need things like that. And I was like, oh, so um, given, you know, you're going to be the, the, the type of folks that are going to go away, you know, go to college and, you know, are, get a great job and careers. Are you planning on coming back here? And they were just like, uh, no. <laughs> and, and it was pretty clear that all the things that they felt the community needed were the things that literally repelled them. 
They wanted to go to places that had things like, you know, um, cafes and restaurants and, and cool bookstores and bike shops and the kind of things that you couldn't find in our neighborhood. That is when Majora Carter suddenly understood why decades of effort and countless dollars spent trying to lift the South Bronx out of poverty had failed. All those services for the poor were reinforcing poverty as the community's core identity, while actively driving away the young people who could make it something better. So rather than thinking about poverty as the problem to solve, which obviously hadn't worked, Carter started thinking of the South Bronx like a company trying to hang on to its top performers. Everybody loves the Cinderella stories, you know, that emerge from places like this. So we know that we've never had a shortage of amazing people coming from neighborhoods like this. But what we have had a shortage of is actually retaining them. We recognize that right now that people in communities like this are taught to measure success by how far they get away from their communities. All we did was recognize that those same people are looking for the same thing that everybody else wants. And they want a lifestyle that makes their community feel like it's worth living in. And so whether it's a cafe, you know, or a bookstore or whatever, or, or housing that matches their income, you know, they want to meet other people and express themselves and feel like their community is worth living in. To get the ball rolling, Carter opened the Boogie Down Grind Cafe. Which is an urban hip-hop experiential cafe with uh, craft beer and specialty coffee and tea and some really cool vibes that really focuses um, and presents our community as as a wonderful place to gather. It's just a few blocks from her childhood home, and its prices are right in line with the four Dunkin' Donuts shops, all within walking distance. But some people in the neighborhood quickly labeled Carter a sellout, a gentrifier. You know, gentrification generally means outsiders coming in to change a community to suit their needs. But it's just like, I'm from two blocks away. Like this is, you know, I took money that I raised um, in other parts of the country, you know, doing work that I did and invested it in my own community. You know, if anything, I'm the exact opposite of, of gentrification. So for a while, Carter was using the term self-gentrification to distinguish her approach which is about making sure that as property values in the neighborhood rise, the businesses and landowners who benefit most are locals. But gentrification is such a polarizing word that she's stopped using it altogether. She prefers reclaiming. Reclaiming involves retaining the talent that's already there to improve our surroundings and our own economic future. It sounds like you're saying, look, the the investment's going to happen <laughs> and either it's going to be outsiders benefiting from it or we're going to do the investment and get that benefit ourselves. And I find one a lot more palatable and supportive than the other. Yes, absolutely. She notes that America has been in the process of re-urbanizing for decades. People are moving from the suburbs back to the cities. Boomers and millennials all want to live near transit, coffee shops, grocery stores, and parks. If they can't find or can't afford a place in the neighborhood that's already offering all of that, they're going to move into places with the potential to. This shift to inner cities stopped during the pandemic, by the way, but experts suspect that was just a temporary pause. Unfortunately, says Carter, people who've been in those struggling urban neighborhoods for generations can be slow to realize that gentrification is coming. We've actually lost a lot of home ownership in the South Bronx just over the past 20 some years, you know, as a 
predatory speculators come in and you know buy homes for cash. Folks believe that there's no um, value in our own community, and I know that unfortunately very well because you know when both my parents passed away, um, I could not get any of my siblings to hold on to the family's property to, to hand it down to the generation behind us. They were just like, why would anybody want to stay there? So they sold it to the first person that that bought it, um, which is a predatory speculator. And um, yeah, now that house is worth almost three times as much as it was sold. And that could have been in my family. But instead, it's uh, in some, you know, predatory speculators balance sheet. You know, they could do that in large part because long before you start seeing things like uh, doggy daycares or, um, you know, cute coffee shops and places where you didn't see them before. Um, that's not when gentrification happens. We think it happens when you, when people in our own communities don't see the value in our own community, so they do sell early and cheap. Majora Carter won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her efforts in the South Bronx. She's now a real estate developer focused on building the kinds of housing and retail that will make ambitious young people think, yeah, maybe I could see myself coming back here. Carter's new book is Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. What would it take for you to move back to your hometown? Here's what Erica Leyland told us. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. There are lots of things that are wonderful about the D.C. area. But um, one thing is, is we had a shooting um, happen several doors down from us, and that really scared me. And we couldn't afford a lot of things in the area. So I wouldn't go back. I love where I live now. I live just outside of La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's a small town, but it's big enough in the sense of we have all the amenities that we need. People here are so friendly. You talk to strangers. They are not nosy, but they are just considerate of everyone else. And here's Reed Wolfley, who currently lives in Greenville, North Carolina. It would take a lot for me to move back to my hometown, Sterling, Colorado, sub 10,000 people. Two hours from Denver, Colorado, on your way towards the Nebraska border. That rural America that is dwindling is my hometown. The JCPenney's is gone. Where are you supposed to shop? And so, unfortunately, good childhood memories. But as a young father, professional, it just does not have what I need unless, for minimum, JCPenney's comes back to town. We all want such different things in a city, don't we? Do you and your family even agree on what would be the ideal place? Next, let's head to rural America for a look at why some towns dwindle and others thrive. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. For about 25 years now, Deb and I have enjoyed traveling around the country in a little single-engine propeller plane from an elevation of about two or 3,000 feet. This is Jim and Deb Fallows, co-authors of the book Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, which is now also an HBO documentary. Several years back, they set out in their small plane to see what resilient towns have in common. The factory closed, the mine closed, there'd been a tornado. 
uh, there was a drought. How did people respond when, when there was trauma in their communities? And how can a town coax its residents into more of a two-way relationship where it's not just, what can the town offer me, but also, what can I offer this community? While Jim's the pilot, I sit in what's called the right seat. This particular plane looks a little bit like Casper the Ghost. It has big windows all around the sides and to the front, so you have a, a great panoramic view of what goes below you. As you come into a, a small city airport, you can really get a sense of the town. Do you see a lot of steeples? Do you see above-ground swimming pools or backyard fancy swimming pools? Do you see factories with no cars in the parking lots? Do you see the weeds in the parking lots, thereby telling you there's not much going on in that factory? So it's, it's a bird's eye view that descends as you go into the small towns and gives you a first introduction that's really different from driving in along the highways past the, the malls and the, and the usual big box stores. One of the humbling things, uh, as, as Deb has often said, about seeing the U.S. from above is seeing things that are intentionally concealed from the ground. Prisons are one of them. Quarries. You would not believe how much of the U.S. is quarry. They're all over the place, and, and you essentially never see them. You go over West Virginia, you see the mountaintop removal coal mines, of course, which and there's no roads near them. You, you see them only uh, from above that way. Also, you can see in the West, you can see patterns of tree harvesting, where there'll be a sort of courtesy band of trees next to the interstate, and then half a mile in, the clear cutting starts. And so again, it's a what you see, what communities are featuring and what they're trying to, to conceal. What themes arose for you then? the markers of a, of a thriving city. So as time went on, we began seeing patterns of things, ways that in which uh, you, you could recognize signs of a city that looked like it was making and signs of cities that were, were having troubles. For example, one of the things we'd af- ask people every place, who should we talk to? Who makes the place run? And there'd be different answers. The answers could be a school principal, a librarian, a politician, a musician, but if there was no answer, that was a really bad sign. People mm-hmm. saying, well, we have to, to get back to you. So one time there was I was doing an article in The Atlantic about our findings. And so I came up at relatively short notice and non-scientifically with <laughs> 10 and a half rules of civic success, which ranged from highbrow things like people knowing the civic story. Why are we here? What is our past? What is our future? Or having inventive community colleges or whatever. I finally got to the one half of the ten and a half rules of civic success, which was whether cities had a microbrewery industry. Do people know their story? Why does that matter to a successful city? I think the reason that knowing a civic story has an effect is it gives people a reason to say something we're doing now will matter 10 years from now. It's a motivation to stay invested. Exactly. I think Greenville, South Carolina is an example where people know their story. It was an old mill town, and they knew how how those mills grew up. They knew that it— the old mill buildings were still there. The textile factories are gone now, and they're replaced by big industry, Michelin. GE is there. GE and BMW, yeah. mm-hmm. right, and it's a very international city. But you always know the history of that city because the, the abandoned 
textile factories are still around. Now they're made into um, beautiful kind of event spaces along the riverside. But what they've done in Greenville to keep those stories alive is a model of what's going on in a lot of other cities, which is about the public arts. One of the things they did was in installations of sculptures along the main street uh, on the big broad sidewalks, which um, showed the history of the town, the people who were important there, the founders, the different steps along the way, the racial incidents that happened in the town. And it has become a way of keeping that history alive. As towns try to keep locals invested in the community, Fallows says they're finding this civic storytelling can be just as important as making sure they've got the basics, like high-speed internet. Maybe it's a mural on a wall where every little kid gets to place his hand in that mural, and then they walk around and say, there's my hand, I'm part of this town, I'm part of the history of this town. And teaching them also of the honorable professions that are in this town. I heard about this a lot in South Dakota, where um, being a butcher is not necessarily something that kids aspire to do. But if you have ways to show them in in their school systems that uh, being a butcher is part of the agriculture, which is the honorable profession in this, in this place, and there is an artistry to doing it, there's pride and also money and a future in this profession of being a butcher, it, it suddenly shifts it around entirely. There's another example of this from your documentary. There was a young lobster fisherman who you talked to. Tell us oh, about him. That's a great follow-up story. His name is Elijah Bryce. He was in high school in Eastport, Maine. He had a summer job as a lobsterman on a, sh- on a boat. And he, he was a very savvy and smart kid. He loved lobstering. He loved his little town. He also knew that this way of life was going to be going away. Because of, because of warming waters primarily, climate change. The lobster would swim north and they wouldn't be around anymore. His solution after going to school for a year or so was twofold. He was going to investigate and build up kelp farming because that's what he saw as, as a way of the future for um, having an economy that could continue to work in Eastport, Maine. And he also uh, loved his lobster boats. So he took courses on how to build boats. And now he's a craftsman. He's Mm. building his own boats. He's being entrepreneurial in the kelp industry. He is newly engaged. He's going to, he has announced that he and his wife are going to stay in this town of 1,400 people in down East Maine (laughs) and be part of the energy that, that drives this town into the future. On your travels, did you ask people what would make their towns better? And what were some of the common responses you would get? We did ask them that. School system, I think, was the number one thing. Um, crime sometimes was something that people would, would, would tell us about. But then I think it was then whether there would be opportunities for the next generation of people. And that's why a sense that there's going to be something here for my children if they stay or something they'd want to come back to. We ended up thinking that institutions of higher education are really enormous levers of this sort of thing where we all know that research universities are so important in bringing talent and, and business to a community. But any sort of, of um, community colleges and private liberal arts schools or whatever, 
in many parts of the country, they've started thinking consciously about how they can help the town um, prevail. I'll, I'll give um, one example in Muncie, Indiana. A Ball State University has taken over running the public schools of Muncie hmm. because it thought its main drawback in trying to attack faculty was that the public schools weren't good enough. And so through an elaborate deal, Ball State University now runs the public schools. And I think in, in a number of towns where we were, people had— um, an instinct that they wanted their towns to have a more diverse kind of population. One of the biggest contrasts we've seen between the narrative of national-level reporting and what we saw city by city is that at the national level, you would think that the entire United States is in the middle of some huge white backlash, you know, that we're worried about immigrants, we're worried about diversity. City by city, we found most communities saying, we recognize that our future is being inclusive of more people. I'll give just the example of Dodge City, Kansas. It's now a majority Latino town where the mainly white, older power structure recognizes that the young people of town are mainly Latino, and they've gone out of their way to say, this is our future. And including during uh, in the 2016 national elections, there was a controversial move by the state government of moving a polling place out of town, away from where most of the Latino voters were. And the white city council of Dodge City passed a resolution the next day saying, we're going to provide free transportation to the polling place for every voter in Dodge City. We welcome our future as an inclusive community. And they put out the announcement in English and in Spanish. And that, to us, is more typical of what we saw, that, that people recognizing that America's story is of continuing inclusion of new people, and that's what makes the U.S. stronger than other countries. What do you now think about the future of America, having spent so much time in its lesser-known cities or its overlooked cities, Jim? I think America's prospects look better than most Americans are aware of because there's a disproportionate coverage of the things that are wrong with America, which are genuinely wrong, versus the people who are trying to correct those things. And since they're mainly doing that work at the local level, their examples are not as widely shared as they could or should be. I think there is more flexibility, inventiveness, partnership, practicality and hope that you find in America's cities, large and small, than most most of the national government now. So I think it, when we are looking for ideas about ways to save the country, if you will, we think many more of them are coming from the local area than elsewhere. Anybody who's feeling cynical, disheartened, disempowered by, you know, what they see in the national news, it sounds like part of the answer to finding your hope and your optimism is to lean into what's happening on your local level. We would absolutely agree. That's where you individually can make more difference and where we collectively can, I think, do more to, uh, to put America on the right course. It's interesting to note that neither Jim nor Deb Fallows live in their hometowns. Jim grew up in Redlands, California. Deb in a tiny fishing and farming town on Lake Erie called Vermilion, Ohio. When I was 10 years old, I woke up one morning with this epiphany, which was, I know exactly what's wrong with my life. I was meant to be born and raised in California. I'm not sure why that <laughs> happened, but, um, but then I met Jim, and he was from California, and it was like destiny, okay. But the Fallows don't live in Redlands, California either. They're in Washington, D.C., and they don't see themselves leaving. 
So after all their research into how the less flashy cities of America are working hard to be the kind of place people want to be, do they feel even a little compelled to go back? We really have invested, continued to invest a lot of our life there. We took our kids there every single Christmas while they were growing up. We continue to go back there. We always drive by the old house. No one owns that house anymore from our family. But it's a place where we invest our energy, feel some loyalty to. We're older. We're not the kind of people who should move back to Redlands now. Um, we're the kind of people who should continue to return there and support it and celebrate what's going on and talk about it in a positive way. Hmm. So that, that is another version of returning to your hometown, I think. Their book is called Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, which is also an HBO documentary. When the time comes for a change of venue, what is that calculation like for you? I think all the negative energy from the pandemic and political division and people just turning into angry, exhausted husks of themselves, uh, myself included, it really changed my priorities. So Jenny Van Stone made the dramatic decision to sell her home in Charlotte, North Carolina and move to France. The dream had always been Paris, but when it came down to it, Van Stone realized she needed something different from the glamorous bustle of the French capital. And I found myself drawn to the, the warmth, the gentleness, the sense of authenticity, and that, that joie de vivre that is more typical of Provence in the south of France. Now, here's someone who came to a similar I-gotta-get-out-of-here moment and chose differently. I'm Lynn Wright Kreutz, and I still live in the town where I grew up in Sudbury, Massachusetts. Kreutz raised her kids in a home she and her husband built on the edge of her parents' small farm. But over the next 30 years, the town grew larger than her liking. Traffic was becoming a nightmare. Mega shopping centers were everywhere. But... The thing with many of the newer people over the years is that they didn't choose to stay. Uh, the town seemed like it was merely a, a stopping point before the next opportunity. So I started to feel like a stranger here. So when the folks passed away and the kids had grown up and we had retired, we got the overwhelming urge to move out. My husband and I, we wanted to find a dream home in the country. But what I was to discover when we were looking for other places was that the deep connection I had formed with the farm since childhood had only intensified over the years, as well as the connection to the incredible neighbors we have. Many of these neighbors are townies like me, and the few who weren't born and raised here have committed to stay. All in all, we're very close-knit, very much an extended family. We get together frequently, um, help each other out at a moment's notice. So when my husband and I were looking at real estate listings for other more bucolic places, we came to the sharp realization that we couldn't go anywhere. If you want that connection, that groundedness of belonging somewhere, you have to do the time. I think people have to choose a place that will be home and choose to stay to make a commitment to love a place for as long as possible and the people in it. 
Can a shift in mindset really help someone love a place they're ready to leave? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. The average American will move at least 11 times in their life. I'm already at 12. Nine different cities, five different states. And as much as I dread the packing and the unpacking, there's no denying the appeal. I think a lot of us have those feelings that if we can just find the right place for us, that everything else in life is going to kind of come together. This is Melody Warnick. Until not too long ago, she was what you might call a serial mover. She and her husband lived in five different states during the first 14 years of their marriage. I remember that whenever my family took road trips, which was a lot, um, that I would always grab the little real estate magazines when we were in the gas station and I would flip through and look at the houses and kind of create this this fantasy for myself. Oh, if I lived in this beautiful place and I had this beautiful house, then, then all those things about my life that are frustrating, you know, the irritating neighbors or the school that isn't quite up to par or the traffic, that somehow we could just find the place that would fix those problems. And it doesn't take long in a new place before you realize that, oh, great, we're going to accumulate baggage in this new community as well. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to fix everything. But that did not stop Warnick from trying. Move number five was to Austin, Texas. We moved there with these hopes that Austin would just be it for us. And Austin was great in a lot of ways, but it wasn't perfect because no city is. And pretty quickly, my husband was like, oh my gosh, it's so humid and fire ants and all this stuff. He went back on the job market, applied for a job, and all of a sudden, you know, within a year and a half of moving to Austin, we were looking at moving away to Blacksburg, Virginia, which is a small town in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Southwest Virginia, where Virginia Tech University is. And once again, I'm like, this new place, this is going to be it. You know, I thought, small town, it's in the South, this is going to be Mayberry. We're going to get to know our neighbors and we're going to plant a garden and our lives are kind of going to slow down. And I I had these huge expectations for what Blacksburg would do for me in my life. And then once again, got there and realized, oh, I, I was wrong. So right on the face of it, you know, the first week or so, it felt like, okay, this is gonna be great. But within, you know, a week or two, you're unpacking, The chaos sets in and honestly, the loneliness of moving to a place where you don't know anyone. And there's just a strangeness to it. I remember thinking, you know, I went to the hardware store to get some keys made, uh, copies of our house key and thought, I need subtitles for the guy across the counter because his Appalachian accent was so thick. And it was just this feeling of, I do not belong here. This place is foreign, and that's really uncomfortable. So at 
after I'd been in Blacksburg for a little while and realized that I kind of hated it and kind of wanted to to leave, um, I also realized that that wasn't realistic. You know, my husband had this new job that he had just started and my kids were in elementary school. You know, my, my older daughter at that point, this was her third elementary school in three states. And so it was just like the reality of we can't just keep doing this. We can't just keep picking up and moving to a new community in hopes that we're going to find something better. And so I started to think about what has to happen for yourself in a community to really start to feel like you love it, to start to feel like you're not, a, you know, a foreigner who landed on the moon, but this is actually your home. You've put down roots here. This is where you belong. Um, and so I started to dig into the research around place and community and what makes people feel that sense of belonging, that sense of at-homeness. And that's when I came across this concept of place attachment, which is the term that psychologists and scientists use to describe that feeling of being really rooted and embedded in a place. You know, place attachment can take years to develop. And I was unhappy now and wanted to feel better about my life in this new town of Blacksburg, Virginia. And so I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start acting like someone who loves their town would act. And so I came up with this idea of doing these love where you live experiments, which were basically little mini action steps, little behavior changes that I could engage in in my town to make myself happier there, to make myself, hopefully, my idea was to make myself feel more rooted. They were things like people who walk and bike in their communities tend to feel more attached. And, you know, there's research around why that happens. Part of it is you are experiencing your place at a kind of slow human pace. You get to know it better. And so I started walking in my town more. There's tons of research about why volunteering in your community makes you feel more a part of it, more of a sense of ownership of your town. And so I signed up to volunteer at the local nonprofit movie theater, you know, popping popcorn before movies. It wasn't instant, but it was kind of like this slow burn feeling better and better about my town. I remember having this moment after I've been working on these Love Where You Live experiments for about a year. And it was just one of those like really glorious summer days and it was warm. And one of my daughters and I were biking on the bike trail to downtown Blacksburg. And we were gonna visit some of our favorite places, the library and the farmer's market. And it was just this intense feeling of well-being, of just, gosh, I love it here. I don't want to move, which was super weird for me because I had always wanted to move. Almost almost no matter where I lived, I always had in the back of my mind, okay, this is okay, but I bet there's someplace better for me. My family's coming up on 10 years here, and it's actually, um, it's the longest my husband has ever lived in any place his whole life by a lot. Um, the longest we've ever lived in a place in our marriage by a lot. And just today, my husband and I were having this conversation about how much we still love it here. And we don't think we can find a better 
community for us. And I do think that everyone can have that experience of finding a place that works well for them and that they, they want to commit to. Is it possible then that what makes a city great for you has mostly to do with what you bring to the relationship? Melody Warnick's first book, This Is Where You Belong, is all about learning to love where you live. And her latest, which is called If You Could Live Anywhere, delves deeper into this idea that loving your community starts with committing to it. One of the towns that um, I, I wrote about is Bell Fountain, Ohio. And this is sort of a classic Rust Belt community. Uh, you know, the factories closed slowly over time. The town shrank. And so... Like a lot of small towns, especially in the Northeast and the Appalachian region, um, this was a town that had seen better days. And it had lots of shuttered businesses and buildings falling into disrepair. And I talked to a guy who lives there named Jason Duff. And Jason was, you know, just a young guy. He was trying to uh, get his start in real estate. But what he ended up doing was investing in the town. He realized that Belfountain would sell him buildings for not a lot of money and that he could invest in fixing them up and then renting them out to entrepreneurs. And he did this in a really uh, curated sort of way. He really fought hard, he and his team, about what kind of town do we want Belfountain to be? What kinds of amenities would would we want to see in this community? So priority number one was a pizza place, <laughs> you know, like let's get a really good brick oven pizza place here. And he went out and recruited some people who ran a pizza restaurant a few towns over, got them to come to Bell Fountain. They opened a pizza restaurant that is really successful. And he started doing that for all kinds of businesses, you know, okay, what if we put a bakery in this spot? What if we, you know, put a, a sports bar? What if we brought a clothing store? He would reach out to people on Etsy who were creators who ran businesses in Ohio, and he would convince them that now was the time to open a brick and mortar business. And why didn't you come to Bell Fountain? And little by little, by renovating buildings and then offering entrepreneurs. Uh, affordable rents to open up their businesses. He's created this community that people love to be in. And the thing that impresses me about that story is that, you know, this wasn't a guy who had a ton of money. He was not independently wealthy. When he started this, he was in his 20s. But he was just determined to change the nature of his community and uh, restore it to a little bit of what it had been. Are there certain factors, certain traits a city has that that make it easier to love, easier to become attached to? For me, place attachment really revolves around people and your relationships with people. And so some towns just do a better job than others at being really welcoming. Um, and sometimes that happens in sort of an official capacity. There's a town in North Carolina called Burlington that does an event for new residents where they invite all the new residents to the city hall. They get to meet the town counselors. They get to learn about all the city amenities and they get to socialize with each other. 
And I think things like that can help people feel settled more quickly. And I've seen all kinds of things. You know, there's a program in Minneapolis where they give new residents a warm winter hat. And it's kind of like, hey, we know you don't understand Minnesota winters and we're going to help you out. We're going to help you make that transition to, to Minnesota you know, there's a community in Iowa that matches you with a local resident and they will introduce you to people. It's called the Wingman Program in Iowa City. And so when you move to Iowa City, if you get matched with a wingman, they'll like invite you to lunch and they'll introduce you to a couple of their friends. And it's just sort of this starter pack of feeling at home in a place, which I think really helps people feel settled. Warnick says the impetus for her new book was the sudden explosion of remote work during the pandemic. If more people than ever now have the option of living and working anywhere, what happens to this whole notion of committing to love your community and the people in it? I kind of came to this conclusion that where you live matters a ton and also doesn't matter at all. (laughs) So in some ways we've come to an era of history where we can be a little placeless, where people can become digital nomads and have literally no address, but still work and support themselves. But a lot of people want to stay where they are and they need a remote job to allow them to do that. You write about an effort in actually in southern, like rural southern Utah, where they started training, offering training programs so that the people who live in those communities could work for companies who are in other places, but then they could stay living right there in southern Utah. Yeah, exactly. So this was a program that started in 2018 called Utah's Rural Online Initiative. There were communities in southwest Utah that were just shedding population because people couldn't find jobs. So it wasn't that they hated where they lived. Most of the people who were leaving wished that they could stay living in the area, but there just wasn't enough opportunity. And there wasn't really, there weren't the population centers to imagine, you know, say recruiting a factory to the area or doing a, a big project that would bring a lot of jobs. So instead, the idea was, what if we reskill some of these workers and prepare them for careers working online. One person became, you know, an office manager for uh, an online company. People, you know, basically any job that could be done online, but a lot of kind of data entry and data analysis and things like that. It wasn't necessarily training people for a particular kind of career. Usually they were trying to look at what people already did, what skills they were bringing to the table, what degrees they had, and then let people know this is possible. In the book, If You Could Live Anywhere, I talk about three kinds of anywhereists, And there are wanderers who are people who are kind of maybe nomadic, they're van lifers, they're people who want to keep their relationship to their place really loose for a while. Then there are people who are seekers, and those are the people who are trying to find that perfect place. Maybe they're not where they want to be, but they really want to find it. They're looking for it. But the last group is settlers, and those are the people who 
are in a place that they love and they want to stay there. And being location independent in your work maybe allows you the autonomy to make that choice that that I, I love it where I am and this is where I want to stay. So since you developed the Love Where You Live experiments and then you wrote about all of that in your book, you've also um, developed kind of a side gig as like a matchmaker or a coach for people, right? <laughs> Who are trying to figure out where they're going to yeah. find their forever home as a, as a city. Um, so what are some of the, I guess, common, common um, desires that people have when they're trying to figure out where to move? And what are some of the common mistakes that you see people make? So... Uh- This is pretty new for me, but it came out of uh, seeing how much people struggle to make these decisions when they're faced with, oh my gosh, I really could move anywhere. It becomes kind of paralyzing. So I think what a lot of people struggle with is kind of these questions of what are my values? Um, You know, a lot of people have to think about cost of living. I think that's a huge factor for a lot of people when they're making decisions about their place. And yet you're also trying to balance that against other things that are important to you. Like, um, I want to live in a creative community. I want to live close to family. I want to live in a place that has lots of opportunity to get outside or to experience recreation. You know, some of the most Uh, well-loved and desirable communities in our country are the ones that are the most inaccessible to the average person just because of price and cost of living. And so it's always kind of this balance of, you know, what do I want and what can I afford? Um, I talked recently to a woman who had moved to a town not far away from me during the pandemic. She and her husband found a house online and they just bought it. And they had never visited this town at all, had never even really been to the state of Virginia or at least this part of the state. And they were coming from Minneapolis. And I think their decision was, you know, it was an act of hope and just that desire to kind of start over. They were really sick of living in a cold climate and they just thought, you know, we're just going to take this leap of faith. And when I talked to her after she'd been living there for about a a year, she said, um, you know, we really like our house, but if we had visited this community before we bought, we might not have moved here. So, She's kind of having that same experience that I had in Blacksburg, where the reality of your community isn't measuring up to what you expected it to be. But I also want to tell her that, you know, that's okay. You know, maybe maybe you ended up in a place that wasn't exactly what you envisioned, but it can it can become more of what you envisioned. And you can contribute to actually making positive changes in your community, but also, you know, with things like Love Where You Live experiments, you can change your your experience of your town over time as well. It might not be too late for her to fall in love with her new place. Right, exactly. She can salvage this relationship. <laughs> I think that one value that people are playing out more and more in their location decisions is 
Um, I want to be happy where I am and I want to have purpose. Um, I think, you know, moving to a town that is already great, already beautiful, already offers a lot of amenities, it can be easy. Those places can be really likable if you can afford them. But I think of people like Jason Duff in Bellfountain, Ohio, who just decide, yeah, this town isn't great right now, but I can have an impact here. I can devote myself in some way to this community and make it better. And I think those are the people who end up being happy in their places, but happy isn't even quite the right word, just fulfilled that your place can become a part of how you create meaning in your life because you're living in a place that needs you and that you can contribute to. And so as I as I think about people choosing where to live, I hope that people don't always choose the perfect city. I hope that people sometimes choose imperfect places that they can come and make a little better. You know, it doesn't have to be dramatic, like you start, you know, buying and renovating real estate. Sometimes you just can make the town better by committing to it, by being present, and by loving it, despite all its flaws. Melody Warnick's books are called This Is Where You Belong, and If You Could Live Anywhere. Thanks to Jenny Van Stone, Reed Wolfley, Kim Parati, Haley Trotter, Erica Leyland, and Lynn Kreutz for adding their thoughts on what makes a city great. I actually moved back to my hometown several years ago, and I'm sharing that story on social media. So come join me at Top of Mind Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Cleon Wall and Ciara Hewlett. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like or leave a review for us wherever you listen. That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Marcus Smith again. Visit byuradio.org or download our BYU Radio app to find Top of Mind, The Constant Wonder Archives, and many other enlightening shows that keep you engaged with the world and help you feel better about our planet all at the same time. We'll be back with more Constant Wonder next week.